0: Good afternoon and welcome to The Coffee Clutch. This is Marianne Russo. We are doing a special show at a special time for a very special author. Um, Sandra Ewan McKay is the author of My Schizophrenic Life, The Road to Recovery from Mental Illness, and it is incredible. Sandra writes, um this autobiography about her her life. Um from an early onset schizophrenia to um remarkable recovery and remission. And um it is just so inspiring and it, it's it's really the type of book that the book is as you're reading it, you're on a roller coaster like, like her life um was. It's it's really very compelling. And um I am just thrilled to have Sandra, Ewan McKay with me today. Welcome, Sandra.
1: Thank you very much, Ryan.
0: Um, yeah, as I said, the book is just really amazing because I think it's uh, often um, not discussed. Most people think that schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder are very rare disorders. And um, I'm just so glad that you're coming on and that you wrote this book and that you're really bringing it to light because, uh, you know, there are children and adults that are really struggling.
1: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've had a really good response from the book. People are really touched by the story, and they they recognize things in their families or their you know their own experience, and it really I guess it really connects with people.
0: Yeah, and you know, and you write about that so well um, in the book because um, you know your onset really started um, from when you really became recognized when you were in eighth grade. Oh, yeah, and, it, um, yeah, eighth or ninth grade. Yeah, right. And and you said that you know there were earlier unrecognized signs. So why don't we start off by uh, telling us what were the signs when it became apparent to everyone and what were some of the unrecognized signs, thinking back?
1: Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid, I was uh, very shy, very introverted. Um, We didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, communication in our family. My parents were both uh, very busy with careers in school and things and um, I guess I wasn't really that socially um, um, active with other people. I would I wouldn't really say how I felt. So maybe I um, was unable to communicate when things started to go wrong for me. So when I started to have auditory hallucinations or, you know, things I was starting to have some paranoia that people were following me, I think I was unable to express that. So it wasn't really caught as early as it could. But I've heard people that have, you know, they look back at their childhood and they've had things going on, you know, since they were very young, like elementary school, and they didn't, they weren't diagnosed until they were twenty. So it is quite common.
0: Right. And you know, you had also wrote about um, hygiene, <clears throat> the um, the lack of hygiene and and <laughs> other, um, you know, things that started to change in you. Yeah. I mean, I think that also it's you know it's a very confusing age because you know the tween years. I mean, parents don't know what to make of you know most of their kids anyway. So I think this is a confusing time. Do you find that um, you know that this seems to correlate with puberty or regulating of puberty for most girls? Does onset usually correlate with this time?
1: Well, for women, it could be anywhere from you know say early teens to thirty. For guys, it could be maybe in the twenties mostly. But you know, people do have it at different times, you know, developing. I've heard I heard even stories of a very young girl like age five showing symptoms of hearing voices. So it's really I, a spectrum. It's a spectrum, yeah
0: right absolutely i mean i i've I've heard also children as young as four years old that showed signs I mean clearly they weren't giving a given a formal diagnosis at that point, but um it was suspected and confirmed as they grew so yeah. um, you know yeah. there can be signs very very early mm-hmm. um you write about being um your first auditory hallucination. you write about being at your friend Candace's house, and this was around mm-hmm. the age fifteen
1: mm-hmm.
0: and you describe hearing voices that upset you and made you misinterpret basically a situation that was going on. So can you tell us um, how these auditory auditory hallucinations um, became more frequent and what it was like for you that you were unable to identify it as it not being reality?
1: I think because it was so gradual, like, you know, I was sort of pulled into it. It was very, very seductive because I was at my friend's house and I thought, you know, I heard people speaking through the ventilation system. You know, I'm right there. The illness must just be able to hear them because in the other part of the house. So that I had like a rational, real, you know, explanation. Then when I had an olfactory uh, hallucination in the lane, like smelling vinegar, oh, it must be the trash. Or if I heard voices outside my house, oh, it must be real people, you know. And, and it was like this whole thing that... The voices I heard were actually belonging to actual people. So that's when I started my break with reality. So it was very hard for me at that time to discern the difference between what was hallucination or delusion and what was reality.
0: Right. And the voices that you would hear I would assume you would correlate to the person.
1: Yeah, um, to so say they were somebody in the they school. Were yeah.
0: Yeah, somebody that I knew. Right, which would also be confusing. And you know, yes. you just mentioned and you wrote about also, um, smells and scents that accompanied these hallucinations. Is that common?
1: Um, yeah. I mean people can have tactile um delusions, they can have visual hallucinations, auditory, um, um olfactory, any type of the senses they can have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what what a, what part of the brain um would schizophrenia um Impact because it does have you know it's auditory, it's um, visual, it's tactile, it's so many different things. Do they know? I wouldn't really know actually. I'm
1: not an expert on it, but um, it basically, when they explained to me, is that in my brain, my the neurotransmitters like the like the dopamine levels and serotonin levels in my brain are are out of out of sync. Mm -hmm. So if there's there's too much um, activity going on or not enough, it can cause me to have symptoms. So what the medications do is kind of um, block some of those neurotransmitters so you're not getting all these extra messages in your head. So I'm not sure if it's an actual, you know, specific like frontal, you know, cerebral cortex or whatever, but it's it's how your brain interprets its environment, how your brain um, responds to stimuli.
0: And, you know, you describe... um... You know, as as this started happening, that you know depression soon followed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and how and you can just hear how painful it was. You know, through your words. I mean, it's just so beautifully written. And you know, it was very painful for you. So combined with the hallucinations and the delusions, this must have been a very hard time for both you and your family. Um, you know, how did your parents first react to these odd behaviors?
1: Um, they kind of thought, okay, son is doing well in school. She's getting A's in school. She's not really talking to the hospital. Maybe she's just having some uh, teenage stuff going on, a phase of some type. She'll come out of it. We'll just watch her. But then I reached a point where I wasn't responding to them. Like my mother would greet me in the morning and I'd totally ignore her. She thought I had a hearing problem. So she took me to my GP and he tested my hearing. She doesn't have a hearing problem. I think she has attention deficit disorder. So they had a misdiagnosis. I couldn't believe that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because I wasn't really articulating, you know, I'm hearing these things. Like I mean, they had, right. There was just no connection there because I wasn't expressing what I was going on for me because I didn't know what, what it was. I couldn't articulate it. And then after that, you know, I did some bizarre things, you know, um, did some destructive behavior, and my sister alerted my mom and dad, you know, we've got to do something. You've got to take Sandra in. She's just not right. Right. So then my mother, you know, called the ambulance, you know, went to emergency at uh, the hospital and spent, you know, three four hours in emergency being, you know, interviewed by various psychiatrists, put on the children's ward, um, not knowing why I was there, what was going on. And then, you know, I talked to my aunt who came to visit me and I said, well, why am I here? What's going on? And she says, well, you have parents schizophrenia. No doctor told me. My parents didn't tell me. It came from my aunt
0: right and you know you yeah. you wrote how your parano- paranoia was taking over your life
1: oh yeah and
0: um you know there were some some events that happened um that were really startling um you know not to gloss over it because um you were not only just hearing things but you you had become extremely paranoid that there were people outside um you you started to develop what you know seemed to be to me to be a little bit of like scrupulosity um, where you were worried if you know if you were possessed by the devil, if God was punishing you, yeah so you know there were really a lot of significant things this wasn 't just uh she 's not acting right, and um you know you were hospitalized, and the hospitalization yeah. was you know clearly needed at that point mm-hmm. um, but your cry for help really was when you um painted your front porch, you painted yeah. your front porch, which I loved it because it really was just screaming for help, and you you painted um who are you?' And why are you doing this to me?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Um,
0: you know, for my, this is a two part question then. So, who were you, who is the who are you that you wrote that for? Um, because, you know, we didn't get into that yet, but you did have um, a boy, Darren who was yeah. a prominent figure in your hallucinations and um you wrote that you felt utterly alone slowly the gate was closing separating me from a normal existence but i didn't realize it i internalized my emotions until i exploded into destructive behavior mm-hmm. so when you wrote that who was who were you writing it for and um were you aware that this was a cry for help when you did it
1: um Definitely a cry for help. Definitely, you know, I was in that state. I had to act. I had to do something because I I felt so ignored, so invisible. Like, I wasn't even there. And um, it was basically, like, anybody out there, can you tell me what's going on? Like, the world Mm. was against me. It was, you know, it was was that expansive, right? And it wasn't just, you know, a couple boys at school. It was my parents. Was my my parents conspiring with the students? Was there somebody out there that was trying to... um, Manage an attack against me. I mean, it was it was just a really, really a lot of fear, a lot of fear.
0: Did the te- did anyone at school realize these things? I mean, was it would they did they notice any changes in you, or was it just things that your parents finally picked up? Well, I stopped talking
1: to my friends too. Like, I kind of uh, right. stopped to hanging out, stopped talking, really to myself. Um, I'm not really sure, really, what they thought at that time. But um, And we're talking in the 70s, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: so, you know, mental illness really wasn't recognized back then.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, my family had no information. Like, we had no family history that we knew of. I had no information. And, you know, it wasn't really, there was no education in the school about mental illness. Like now, like in Vancouver, we have the BC Schizophrenia Society and Early Psychosis Intervention. They go into high schools, they go into universities and colleges, and they educate students about mental illness. And that was not what was in
0: place at that time. But, you know, it's very key what you said before because you write about that later in the book that there's no correlation between intelligence and schizophrenia, and there's Mm -hmm. no correlation between intelligence and autism or other types of mental illness. Mm -hmm. So I think that often um, a lot of children fall through the cracks and fly under the radar because they assume that because they're intelligent and that because they score well Mm -hmm. um, that they're okay, and it's just such a mistake.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know,
0: and I think from reading, because, I mean, you're obviously brilliant as a child, that, you know, you were one of those kids, you know. Thank you. <laughs> well, um, I have you
1: know, heard, if- sorry, I have heard that, you know, there are studies that if people have repeated psychotic episodes, it can start to damage your, your you know, how your brain works, your cognitive abilities. So right. in the long term, like if you're, un- you know, you say you're untreated or you have repeated problems, um, it can... Affect your cognitive ability, yeah. Over time, I, I think that's yeah. true
0: also for mania, which we're going to talk about later, which also jumped on the bandwagon for you, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, the same thing they they find with um, well, you know, chronic stress too. You know, I mean, all of these things just wear on 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 the body and you know, the brain and the. Uh, you know, hypothalamic axis. So I could see how if it is untreated that it would at some point, you know, cause cognitive problems. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was at this time that you had your first hospitalization, and it was a forced hospitalization. And I was surprised, actually, um, to read your sense of relief, at least initially. Um, Do you remember what that felt like? Because you really stressed that in the book that, you know, you felt safe. I felt safe.
1: I had stopped hearing voices. I wasn't having hallucinations. I felt protected from the external world because I was in hospital and I felt I could breathe. Finally, somebody's going to address my problem because I had I had nobody to go to. I didn't trust anybody. I thought maybe maybe the doctors can help me. You know, maybe now I'll get some help because I was so distraught.
0: And you know, and that's not a great setting. So mm. that just had to show the turmoil that you were in. But you mm. just said that they stopped. Now, what do you account it stopping? What, what, do you, what do you can account that for? Was it the medications or was it a change of environment?
1: Well, actually, when I heard voices, it was like on and off for six to eight months. Like, it wasn't constant all the time, it would kind of come and go, ebb and flow. So, I guess what it was is, you know, when I was coming, you know, through that first psychotic episode, my problems changed from hallucinations to delusions so it was still like a positive symptom but it was it had changed that it was affecting me in a different way so i was still ill but i was experiencing a different type of symptom
0: right and i would imagine that delusions would be much harder for people to pick up because it could just be a teenager who's you know dramatic yeah um, rather than auditory hallucinations mm-hmm. um you know and as i read the chapter about this time you were you know you were so young um you know you're 15 years old yet you were so nonchalant about what was happening I was really taken with that. You write later in the book about um, the stunted maturity um, that comes with the disorder. But as I read this this chapter about, you know, your first forced hospitalization, there was this seemingly incredible maturity, the way you adapted to the situation. You know, you wrote that you fell asleep for the first time without tears Mm -hmm. in a very, very long time. So, you know, how was it that you were able to be so nonchalant about the hospitalization.
1: Well, I mean, I did actually
0: run away from hospital at one point because
1: I didn't want to be there. Um, I had experience, you know, in hospital where a man kind of came on to me, an adult man, and how I handled that. And it was like, you know, I guess maybe I was naive. Maybe I was just not realizing the impact but you know when i got out of hospital it's like whoa what an experience to be on a psych ward with people that are visibly shaking and trembling from the medication they're shuffling around they're talking okay. to themselves 90% of the of the patients are smoking um you know and you know it was like you know being flung into uh yeah a hospitalized setting and it was like it, it felt enormous when i got out of there but when i was there i felt that I needed to get on the right medication. I needed help. I needed to get a psychiatrist. I needed that help. If I wanted to go back to school, if I wanted to go back to life, I had to take on these things and get through it. You know, because so I was determined, you know, I wanted to get back to life. You know, I, I'm not going to be at, uh, you know, like a like a long-term facility for years, you know, for, for you know, teens or adults to live at at a, at, a, at a place. I wanted to be with my family. I wanted to finish school.
0: Well, yeah, before I go to your family, because that was my next question, but I want to back up a bit. Um, you do write about how you endured um, sexual molestation from a patient, mm-hmm. um, an older um, man, when you were in the hospital. And um, you were you wrote about how you were unprepared for sexual advances, mm-hmm. and part of that was the immaturity, and part of that was that, um, as you said, you really didn't have that open communication in your home. So mm-hmm. before we m- move on, I mean, what would you tell our parents about speaking openly with their children who have special needs? about, you know, about sex and relationships.
1: I think any child, you know, ill or not, you need to have those conversations.
0: You know, I say to my mother, well, you know,
1: can you talk to me about boys? Can you talk to me about dating or what, you know, do I need a curfew, whatever? And she was like, you know, you'll figure it out. You know, like, you know, when you're ready, you'll know. And there was no dialogue. There was no that facts of life dialogue. (laughs) You know, right. there's, you know, about, you know, puberty, there's nothing, nothing, yeah. But, I, you know, I talk to other people and they say it was like that for them too, you know, at that time or earlier than that. There mm-hmm. maybe wasn't as much uh, communication about that in certain people's families.
0: Right, and, you know, what we find, like we find with our um, families that have children with autism, I mean, we really stress that because not only do you have to explain it to them, but in some cases with different disabilities, you have to be really specific because there's a literal way of thinking.
1: Mm -hmm. you know Mm
0: -hmm. um and you know to be prepared is really important you know getting back to your mother you know when i was reading about your mother coming to visit you i mean it was heart-wrenching for me as a mother oh it was hard for her Uh, and you know and and i think that so many parents go through this some who have to you know hospitalize their children some that need to send their children to um you know residential treatment facilities and um you know, your dismissal of her pain back then was understandable. Number mm-hmm. one, you were young, and number two, um, you were really not in touch with the reality of what was going on in your life. Mm-hmm. But your dismissal of her pain and, and um, you know, inability to your disorder to see her love for you was so sad. Mm-hmm. You know, at what point um, did you come to the realization of how much your parents loved you and that you understood why they had to make the choice to hospitalize you?
1: Yeah, I mean... You know, in times of wellness I really depend on my family. My family was really there for me. They supported me, they rose to occasion when I was up or down, they helped me out. They they were like the twenty four seven care, right?
0: Mm-hmm. And it was
1: really difficult for them. But it took me a while to realize even have an inkling of how deep their pain was, because I was so in my own world. I was so in my own head. Like I didn't realize how my sister, for example, you know, how much pain and suffering it brought her. How she felt so bad, and you know, and and maybe it's a bit helps the situation. Yeah, her. her it's you know, scary sister. for the
0: siblings, and I yeah. think you know people yeah. underestimate that with these, you know, with these what she must have saw and how frightened she must have been for you and for herself. Mm-hmm. I
1: had a conversation with my sister, and she said to me, "You know, Dad said that he would rather die than watch you go through that again." And my dad, you know, being you know Chinese you know, professional male, you know, he wasn't really open with me about his feelings sometimes. But uh, when I heard that from my sister, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I didn't, you know, and I would have conversations with my sister and, you know, she'd be in tears, I'd be in tears. And I'm saying, you know, I'm so sorry about what happened. I, You know, I, if I wish I could change it, go back and make it less painful for you, you know. But it was sort of, you know, I couldn't, we can't do that. We can't go back
0: right and that's important and that's important uh you know for, for not only for you to realize but the parents to realize because you know I, I see it all the time you know i've seen it in my life when um when the children get the, the effective treatment and when they're feeling better you know there is so much remorse
1: mm-hmm. and
0: um you know that's when there's so much growth because they just look back on um, the damage to the relationships, and, the, you know, I think that's where a lot of maturity comes in. And you can't get there until you find some stabilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And, um, you know, once once you were released from the hospital, and yes, as I was saying, you know, it was just heartbreaking because one of the stories in the book is how your mom came to see you and she was crying, and, you know, you were like, well, do you have allergies? Yeah. And she's like, "No, I'm I'm crying, you know, because I I I feel bad for you and like you will just like if you feel bad for me, why am I here?" <laughs> and I think that, you know, it made sense from your point of view. Um, but I think that this is something so many parents go through because a lot of children are hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And um when you came out, you were very open about it, but a lot of families aren't, and that's a personal choice. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, it's just it's such a difficult decision, and you know I hear from parents all the time. How could I do that? How could I do that? Well, sometimes you have to, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just have to. And you know, mm-hmm. how 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 old were you when you when you came to the point that you said, "Wow," <laughs> you know that I can't believe that they they had to do that, and you realized how much they they loved you.
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, later high school.
0: Later high school. Yeah, well, yeah, when you were yeah. released, I don't know how you did it. You know, you went right back to high school. Did you homeschool or did you just go back to school? I went back to school. That's incredible. I mean, that must have been so hard for you. What do you remember about the reaction of people? Because you were really open about it. And and you were even taken by the fact that it was, you know, like no big deal.
1: Yeah. You know, where you been? Well, I was hot and hospitalized for paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> kind of came I out. know. <laughs> I mean, I, mean um, I did have some fear around returning to school. Like I thought uh, the students all knew that I had been in hospital. I felt that I was getting telepathic messages from a student. I thought, you know, people could read my mind. So I was still having a lot of uh, sort of intermittent symptoms. But when I was three months back in school I had a remission and I kind of was really calm I wasn't having any kind of symptoms you know and I thought you know hey you know this is what clarity is this is reality where reality is and from that time on I could measure you know I would have a better idea okay am I being in the real world right now or I'm in Mm -hmm. delusion right now I mean I went back I would go back and forth you know into psychotic episodes and delusional times but you know because of that first remission I had this kind of Hey, you know, maybe I have the hope that I can function in the teacher you know it was it was a limited it was only about two
0: three weeks, but uh, it
1: made a lot of difference for me.
0: I think that was the most powerful thing you wrote in the book from my point of view. Mm-hmm. Hands down the most powerful line in the book, and I actually had it written here to quote it. You said because of my first remission as short as it was I knew sanity. I saw the disturbed thinking as outside of reality. Since then I had the hope of recovery. Mhm. Yeah. I mean, you know that that's just incredible because you know before that um you know throughout your life and throughout the book there's a, a boy named Darren. Yeah. Who seemed to haunt you. Yeah. Uh really there's no other word for it. Um who was Darren? And why do you think he became such a focus of your irrational thinking?
1: Yeah, I guess I just got obsessed. Like I felt he was the one that was outside my window watching me. Was he a
0: real person? Yeah, he's a real person, but
1: I had like, in my fantasy, it was him outside the house, right? So um, I developed this kind of real connection with this boy, so I associated with this boy at school, this real boy at school. And I would say, "I would like uh have this connection, and it was like he, I was really drawn to him, I was obsessed with him, I was in love with him I, you know I didn't want I had peer pressure, I didn't want can I you know report him? What should I do? I want to protect him. I'm in love with this kid um and then it reached a point where I went to his house, and I said, "You know, why are you guys you know bothering me? Why are you hanging around outside my house and Of course he didn't know what I was talking about. And I became very angry, and I, you know, I said, you know, I'll get you back for this. And I kind of left, and you know, and he would be in some of my classes, and I kind of stare at him and stuff, you know, I'd stare at people, and yeah, it was it was kind of a strange thing, you know, and um, so it was really an obsession. It was really an obsession with this person.
0: Yeah, and you know, and it, it, it traveled with you. I mean, this was from the time you were fifteen up until you know your adult life, and you know, before we touched upon uh, mania um jumping on the bandwagon at this point um and that's when Darren became once again became prominent in your life and you wrote um psychosis is deceptive it slips into the conscious mind drawing one into an alternative world um you know why Is the mania and the depression, okay, is schizophrenia, you said it was a spectrum, and many times Mm -hmm. um, disorders on the spectrum have a lot of comorbidity with other disorders.
1: Mm -hmm. So
0: is depression and mania and phobias part and parcel of schizophrenia, or are these comorbid disorders? Okay, so schizophrenia,
1: the major symptoms are um, the delusions, hallucinations, the cognitive problems, plus some of the um, negative symptoms like withdrawal, apathy, um, poverty of speech, um, things like that. Um, if you, you could have schizophrenia with a small amount of a mood disorder, you can have bipolar or or de- major depression with a little bit of psychosis. But you know, schizoaffective disorder, which is my diagnosis now, is a combination of both in equal amounts. So I have equal amounts of the mood problems, like highs and lows, with, along with the Delusion. So that was my diagnosis now. Right.
0: So so actually your diagnosis is um schizoaffective disorder instead yeah. of schizophrenia. Um and I just wanted to ask you, you know, I know that with depression, um, oftentimes people are given um antidepressants and mm-hmm. if they have a, a genetic predisposition for bipolar disorder that can uh turn the switch. Um, did you find that um uh, medications um were troublesome adjusting to medications did some medications bring on other um disorders or symptoms yeah or was i it mean all part and parcel yeah
1: definitely i think uh, like the older um Antipsychotics like Haldol, and I was on Stolzine for quite a few wow. years, fifteen mm-hmm. years. Um, it can cause tardive dyskinesia, which is like tremors and like you could have tongue movements. Your eyes can twitch, things like that. Very right. physical, very embarrassing. Um, like they're kind of like Parkinson's type symptoms. There's uh, you can have restlessness. Like I had a lot of anxiety from the medication. You would think the the medication would relax you, but it doesn't. You're on right. this buzz, and you and you, you know, I I'd have insomnia, I'd have a lot of sedation, I had trouble getting out of bed, I was, you know, and and it kind of deadens your expressiveness or how you receive stimuli because it's blocking those neurotransmitters. So, you know, my my contact, like being able to feel things, like feel deep emotion, was affected by the the medication. And then when the newer atypicals, like like uh, risperidol or zyprexa or clozapine, they are more specific in the neurotransmitters they affect. So you may have a different reaction. Like risperidol, I was very manic on risperidol. But olanzapine, I was more calm, but it did still contain my symptoms.
0: And there was a lot of dulling. Um, you know, with a lot of these um, antipsychotics, and but they, mm-hmm. you know, the newer ones, like you said, the risperdal, the zyprexa, um, you know, they do have a much, l- they have a lower profile for tardive dyskinesia, and you know, you could yeah. also get akathisia from these drugs as well, which is just a restlessness. Um, you know, but before we go back into um, discussing the book in your life, I just want you to clarify because I think the general public has a real um, misperception of what schizophrenia is. I think it's often confused with multiple personality disorder.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
0: So can you just clarify that a bit, if you could?
1: Okay, the word schizophrenia means split mind. So in history, because of the erratic uh, changes in, in behavior of people with schizophrenia, they identified it as a multiple personality, but it's really not that. The basis of schizophrenia is having these sort of delusions or hallucinations which may make you act out, which may may make you act strangely. Um, So it's not really a personality change. It's not really, well, I'm, you know, Sybil, I'm this person now, this person later. It's more an underlying emotional upheaval caused by mental um, um, problems with, with reality
0: which is very different from multiple personality mm-hmm. disorder mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, despite everything um, you finished high school, yeah, and began working um you know I was wondering, do you think that the fact that you did you did score with a high i q
1: yeah
0: and as we discussed earlier, you know intelligence does not correlate with severity of a disorder um, do you feel that at times that your intelligence was a deficit?
1: Well, because my memory is
0: really, <laughs> I mean,
1: I remember stuff, you know, and that really caused me a lot of grief because I couldn't let go of past episodes or past events. I would just ruminate and go on and on about it. I'd obsess, I'd think about things over and over and be very compulsive about it, very, you know, just mull and, and regurgitate it and or, re- you know, just go over and over stuff. And I think that really went against me. Um, it took me a long time to say, okay, I've thought over this problem that happened past long enough. You know, my questions may never be answered. I need to just let it go and move on with my life. So that was really uh, a big turning point when I had insight to know that, you know, you can't change it, you know, just leave it. Don't go there. Don't reopen that Pandora's box.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get into that because that really was how um, you regained your... Um, your sanity, and I hear that a lot from um, people that have different um, mental illnesses. It's it's what I call the loop, mm-hmm. um, where they get, um, like you said, they they go back in time and think of these episodes, and it gets stuck on almost like a loop for them, mm-hmm. and they get caught right back. They get sucked right back into that emotion and that feeling.
1: Um, right. And
0: you know, we're going to talk about that towards the end of the interview about how you were able to learn to overcome that. Um, but once you finished high school, you, you worked um, for a while with your father, who was a brilliant architect, mm-hmm. um, and then you wanted to branch out on your own, and you started working at a school district where you worked with a child with special needs. So I'm curious mm-hmm. to hear about that. And also, um, that's where your art was first recognized. So tell us <laughs> a bit about your jumping out there into the uh, the workforce.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, I, I did work for my father for a number of years, um, but I was often late or uh, or didn't show up because of my meds or my illness. Um, but I got the work done. He said I was the best secretary he ever had
0: because right. I
1: could, you know, inter- you know, kind of predict what he needed. Like if, if a call came in from a client, I'd have the file on his desk you know, because I knew that's what he needed to refer to. Um, like, I would know, I would recognize who's on the phone without them telling me, and I'd say, you know, Mr. Smith's on the line, you know, did his income tax, rent. you know, helped with his rental property, helped with his investments, like, did a lot of stuff for him, really learned a lot about small business. But when I worked at the elementary school, the, uh, yeah, you know, working with kids, kind of neat, and, and taking care of the stressful needs girl who, you know, really had no communication skills, I found it very difficult to 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 communicate with her because she was sort of uh not able to respond. Um and uh but at this high, at this elementary school um they, I mentioned that I was an artist and I brought in my portfolio and the teacher said, Well could you be a mystery artist for our art series? So, you know, they had, uh, had a painting there and the students didn't know it was my art and they uh they looked at it and said, Oh, oh, you know, what do you know about this artist from their style and, you know, things like that and so yeah, it was, I was a and they painted in my style. kind of, you know, studied me as like like Matisse or somebody. So it was really neat. And then when the teacher said, you know, I'm gonna reveal who the mystery artist is, and they, you know, she's in this room, and the students all looked around and it's Sandra because they knew me as a different um, last name, and uh, they were they were very ecstatic and asked for my autograph, and that was
0: really neat. That was just really adorable. Neat. Yeah, really neat. You know, I don't know if you've ever read the book, um, Neurodiversity, written by Dr. Thomas Armstrong, um, but what he um, writes in this book is about constructing a lifestyle niche from education to career. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as I was reading the book and when I got to these chapters, um, you know, and I was just thinking, all right, you know, she could have worked with her father, but it's difficult to work a nine-to-five when you have that medication fog and and other problems. So, um, you know, how important was constructing a lifestyle for you as far as a career? Because this would not be a nine-to-five now, what you're doing. And by the way, the cover of this book, I believe, is one of your works? Yeah, one of my paintings. Yeah, and you know I love it because <laughs> when I look at it, you know when I first looked at the book, I didn't <clears throat> excuse me, I didn't think that much about it. It was like oh, nice, bright, colorful. Mm-hmm. And then as I read the book, and now when I look at the picture, I see something completely different. <laughs> you know, I just see. I mean, from from what I see of the picture, it's just like a beautiful um, collage of colors. And then there's just like this striking red on it that just is like it's shattered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I don't know if that's what you were meaning to put through when you when you painted it, but, I mean, it's just so striking, really beautiful. Thank you, thank you.
1: Yeah, I kind of associate
0: it, like, with a Rorschach blot, blot test, you know? Right. It's kind of like a bit of a psychology nudge in there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but, I mean, it's, you know, the book is powerful, the, the the painting is powerful, but, um, you know, getting back to the question, I mean, how how were you able to... Um, use your art and your disability and construct this lifestyle to write this book, to, you know, do the art classes. And from there, really, your life changed.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, uh, you know, I'm sort of jumping ahead, but I had a relapse in 1998. And after I came out of that, I had to start from square one. I quit my job with my father. I was on a new medication. And I was like, okay. I need to make some changes. I can't work full-time. I recognize that. I need to have a life that's flexible hours, a job that's flexible hours, um, things that I want to do, things that I like to do, and find my niche, like you said. Right. And I found that through like the art studios, which is a program for um, mentally ill people that teaches art, and I connected with a writer's group there. And out of that, I started to become much more creative, and that was so healing for me. And you know, you know, I'm so proud of this book. I'm proud of my artwork and stuff. You know, I'm proud to exhibit my work. But my husband said to me, you know, Sandra, you know, you you did this also for yourself. You know, to do your art is very therapeutic for you. So you know, it, you selling a painting is great, but remember the reason you're doing it is for your own your own health, your own welfare, because it keeps you going, right? It keeps you focused and. And purposeful in what you're doing, and feeling good about what you're doing. So right now, I do quite a few different types of jobs. You know, I do some public speaking on recovery. Um, I'm a liaison worker for the Consumer Initiative Fund, which offers programs for people with mental illness. I'm involved with the art studios. Um, I do some a little bit of interior design. You know, I do painting. You know, do the writing, working on a novel. So I'm doing all these different things, and it is so rich my life right now.
0: Well, so rich, and and you deserve it. Um, And you hear that so often that there's this, you know, creativity and everybody's sick of hearing it. But I say it all the time. You know, everybody has a gift. And Mm -hmm. with these disorders, especially these mental illnesses, it's so important to find that gift and and Mm -hmm. nourish it because Mm -hmm. it's going to change. You know, it changed your life. Um, Something else that changed your life was Greg, your husband. (laughs) And he just sounds extraordinary. So tell us about Greg.
1: Okay, Greg, I met when I was in high school, and um, I met him, like, at camps and and, uh, youth groups and stuff, but he was a lot older than me. I mean, I was, you know, when I got out of high school, I was, what, 17? He was eight years older than me. And he, you know, I kind of thought, well, he's got a degree. He's he's like a university guy, you know. I thought, you know, he's blonde, blue-eyed. Um, very attractive, so I, you know, he he called me up and said, uh, would you like to go for a drink? And I, you know, kind of, oh, you know, like, oh, I don't drink, you know, I'm on medication, I'm 17, I drink. He says, I don't mean alcohol, I meant like lemonade or something. Like, that's <laughs> was funny. Aww. So, yeah, we connected and we started to see each other, and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we had some rocky times, you know, like, you know, because we dated for a very long time. Um, you know, I wasn't sure, you know, do we wanna pursue this? Or are we gonna get married? What's our future gonna be? Because, you know, financially we couldn't we couldn't do it at the time. I was at university for a while. Um, but then, you know, when we did when he did propose to me and we got married, it was like the most wonderful time. It was so wonderful. I had waited so long to get married. We dated for about ten years, got married in nineteen ninety four and he has been the enormous support for me throughout the last, you know, since 1994 so the last 15 years or 16 years um, he's amazing he doesn't have psych- uh, an illness <laughs> he's not an artist but he's very very much um, compliments me and we you know we do things as a couple um, he helps me you know manage my illness he knows when I'm obsessing he knows when something's on my mind from expression on my face he really looks out for me and I live with him and his some of his family like his extended family and There's always activity in the house. Like there's, there's no dull moments. Like there's lots of things going on. And actually I think that's good because it keeps me in a simulated environment. If I was in an apartment, yeah, like if I was in an apartment all day and he was at work, I would be so isolated. But in my present situation, there's so much going on. It's just like there's always something to distract me. There's always someone to
0: talk to. Right, and that's so yeah. important because you like we were talking about the loop. You don't need to go to go there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but how did your disorder impact your relationship and how did it um affect blending into a new family? I mean I mean I would assume that um you know, when you you met your new family, you know, you discussed mm-hmm. your disorder, you know, how did they feel about it? Was there a stigma involved? And um, you know, how how does it impact your relationship? Obviously not, not at all. <laughs> well,
1: you know, I started seeing Greg when I was, I guess, eight seventeen, eighteen, right? And um you know, he said, Oh, I heard you were in hospital. Are you okay? And I heard you had a nervous breakdown. I said, Yeah, I'm fine And yeah, I'm I fine. think yeah, I think, you know, he didn't see me as a mentally ill person. He didn't see that label on me. He saw the other 95% of me, that wasn't about my illness. It was about, you know, my sense of humor, my personality, um, my quirky <laughs> jokes. You know, we you know we do things together. We were attracted to each other. We, you know, we fell in love. It wasn't so much about, you know, I need to take care of you, but you're a caregiver because you're mentally ill. You know, it wasn't like that right. kind of, you know, like rescue victim thing. It was much more... Um, Equal than that, uh, I mean, you know. It, uh, sorry, no. Go ahead. Well, at times, you know, he did have to bail me out. He did have to bail me out because I was so, you know, hostile or caught up or, or or obsessive in what I was thinking. But he is a trooper. I mean, I've never met somebody who was so forgiving and so patient. And his
0: yeah, family I mean, it, it comes so through accepting. in the book. Yeah, because I mean, you did telling... you did suffer um, a relapse and a hospitalization um, mm-hmm. after you were married. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this man stood by you. Mm-hmm. Um, so h- what were the triggers? Do you, do you Can you identify? I mean, I would assume triggers are different for everybody. But you had a long period of stability,
1: mm-hmm. and then you
0: had this relapse. Mm-hmm. So are you able to identify in yourself the triggers, and are the triggers pretty much universal, or does everyone have to find their own?
1: I mean, my triggers are stress. Um, say, too much going on, like, you know, too many things planned out, Um, um, exhaustion, like if I'm really fatigued, Um, I think that can trigger a lot of things for people, anybody with mental illness, that, you know, if they're, say, you know, depression in the winter, they got SAD, you know, things like that, I think those are common across the board. But certain triggers, like if it has something, it's an association with something in my past, say I run into Darren in the street, that would trigger me, right? So then I that would be a specific trigger to my particular illness. But for other people, it could be something else. It could be the lights, um, so the traffic lights. It could be the, the license plate that could trigger them. It could be um, you know, people around them who they think, oh, they're talking about me. So it could right. be a little bit different for different people.
0: Right. And you know, and I think it can be so difficult because I'm sure there are a lot of people that are undiagnosed. Um that are really shunned because people mm-hmm. just don't understand mhm, um, you know how much of a genetic component is there to this because you write about your concerns about having a child and coming to terms with the decision that you and your husband made
1: mhm mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think yeah, there is that genetic connection, like for example, you know if i have if I had an identical twin, she would have um a forty eight percent chance of having schizophrenia. And I think if you have like a close relationship, like if your parents ill or your siblings ill, it could be, I guess, around maybe ten to thirty percent chance, something like that. Um, but the general public, I think it's one in a hundred for the general public.
0: Huh, that's pretty high.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's surprising to me, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to start wrapping up the interview, but I, what I wanted to go into is. Um, you know, you found a way, and you said that it came with maturity, mm-hmm. that you found a way to um, really put, put just push it away from you, push these negative thoughts that pull you back into that loss of reality. So mm-hmm. how did you do that? And if there's a parent out there or there's an adult out there listening, what could they do to help from falling into these relapses?
1: yeah for me, like you know, I try to catch it as soon as I can, so if I'm you know something's going on and then i have say I have some kind of anger about something, like I get kind of you know start to rant about something um right away, my husband or you know or I will say, okay this is something's going on you know, and it might continue for a while, and then it's like, okay, what do I do? This isn't leaving me alone, it's not a passing thought. What do I do?' So that might mean distracting myself, turning on the TV, going for a walk, um, reading a book. It could mean taking extra medication, calling my mental health worker that I need to make an appointment for a med change. Um, it could mean I need to, you know, fall asleep. I need sleep. I need to cut out these things from my uh, agenda because I got too many things going right now. Or it could be, it could be even a positive thing, like if I had a really um, um, good experience, you know. Say I, you know, um, had a really good event where I was speaking at and sold, say, 25 books or something, and I could have a high from that. Then I'd fall, right? I kind of crash from right. that, get hit a downer,
0: and then I'd have to level out. Right. Yeah. So it's really just being in touch with yourself, and um, you know, but and having the support. I think the support is so important because mm-hmm. I'm sure there are times that you're going to miss it, that somebody's going to be there to say, uh, well, "Wait a minute, <laughs> yeah, you know, here we go again." <laughs>
1: Yeah, but before
0: yeah. we before we end the interview, I just want to go back to where we started with the early signs. And um, you know, if you could just once again tell us what parents should be looking for. What are some red flags? And um, at different stages, because you said mm-hmm. that you know you, you were diagnosed when you were fifteen, but you remember signs earlier.
1: Mhm. I think if your child is withdrawing. That could be, you know, a number of things. But it's like a combination. You look for the combination. Are they not bathing? Are they stop seeing their friends? Do they stay in their room all day? Do they not, you know, come out of their room? Are they very isola- Are they isolating themselves? Um, um, are they able to carry in a conversation with you? Do they seem disoriented, or are their minds somewhere else? I mean, these are, you know, things that you would think are just normal, but you know, it's you. You need to check it out. You know, like if you think your child um, is ha- is excessively isolating themselves, check it out. Check it out. Keep the communication open, because if you if that child is experiencing something that they're really fearful of, or they're getting some really paranoia, they're gonna they're not gonna want to talk to anybody. So it's really important to keep that communication open.
0: And here we go again, parents. Fear. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sandra, I speak with, uh, we, we, we we deal with all disorders.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, um, you know, that's one thing that through all of these shows that I've done that I'm finding is the root to almost all of these problems, autism, bipolar disorder, ADHD, um, obviously obsessive-compulsive disorder. Um, but fear seems to be the core emotion. Do you think that fear is the core emotion also in schizophrenia?
1: You mean from the parents?
0: well no, from the for the 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 intrinsic feeling of the disorder
1: for me is it for me- for
0: yes, schizophrenia do you feel that fear is one of the core um emotions
1: um, I would have a lot of emotions like not just fear but hostility like outright hostility um very suspicious, very paranoid very um um confused, obsessed, anything like that. Any kind of extreme emotion would fit into that. Do you, know, even you have a lot of rages yeah.
0: and outbursts as a child?
1: Um, I'd, have, have crying spe- I'd have crying spells, you know, getting upset, you know, say if I, you know, something bad happened to me or a kid called me a name. All
0: right, but that's uh, something
1: the like that. Point. Yeah, yeah.
0: Because a lot of these things that you're the earlier signs so far, almost every other than the um, paranoia, almost all of the signs were the same signs that you would find in depression. Oh, yeah? So I could see where it would have to progress, really, for it to be identified as uh, Mm -hmm. schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, you give so much hope to parents and to adults. Um, You know, it's just been such a a journey for you. It's incredible. Thank you. So where can everyone find you and find your book?
1: I'm on the Internet. If you Google Fangio and McKay, I've got quite a few things I'm on the Internet with. I've got a, web, a couple websites with my art and uh, reviews of my book and interviews, other interviews I've had. And um, I, um, My book is available on Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble online, Chapters Indigo online. Um, it's not in a lot of brick-and-mortar stores right now. It's mostly online.
0: Well, it's worth the read. It's worth going online and ordering it because, yeah. I mean, really, you just, you know, you have an incredible life. It's it's The the book is very well written, and um, I really feel like I was in your house uh, <laughs> as I was reading it, and, you know, I, I, I wish you continued success, and, um, you know, you're an incredible advocate. I thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you very much, Rand. I was glad to do it.
0: I'm glad you were here. Um, as we end the show each day, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent. Uh, today, you're getting a double dose of the Coffee Clatch. Tonight, we are going to be having our um, your chat, which we offer maybe every month or so, and it's your hour to go on tweet chat your topics, your issues, your struggles, your triumphs. It's your hour. So join us tonight, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, on TweetChat using our hashtag TCK or jump into our automated chat room. Sunday, we are turning the tables on Ann Barbano, who is the producer-director of the Autism Maze. She is the host of The Next Frontier, and uh, she's going to be joining us, and we are going to be discussing autism through the years, how autism has changed um, since she created the Autism Maze many years ago. So thank you for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again on Sunday.